Okay, as our custom, let's stand and read the God, or the, not the gospel, but the word of God. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he was suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Let's pray. Lord, these verses are, there's only three or four here, and um, they seem short and simple at, at the outset, but they're rich in meaning and rich in purpose. Pray, God, that as we walk through your, the word today, that you will give me clarity in how to relate not only this passage, but other passages as well. And that wherever we are in our faith and understanding of you, um, that we walk out of here with way more understanding about who you are, what you did, and why you did it. So we look forward to our time together. Guide me into truth. In Christ's name, amen. So as we enter the Christmas season, um, we all know and believe what this season's about as Christians. As much as we enjoy the food and the presents and time with our family, we know it's to celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So while there's not much confusion for us surrounding the purpose and meaning of Christmas, an interesting question does arise, however, from the season and what that brings about. And that is the question of why was it necessary for Jesus' birth in the first place? What was the purpose of the Incarnation? Like why in a lonely stable about 2,000 years ago, in a village called Bethlehem, did God take on human flesh and dwell amongst us? Again, in the Christian terms, this is called the Incarnation. So what was the purpose of it? Well, it's an important question, and if you haven't experienced it yet, you will one day as you speak to different people of different faiths especially if you're dealing with a Muslim. See, in their belief system, the, the, the belief of the Incarnation for them is something they, they really reject. It's, a, it's something they condemn. Uh, they also condemn the Trinity, this aspect as well, but they have a hard time with the Incarnation. And the reason they have a problem with this is they believe that this idea of God taking on flesh and dwelling amongst people greatly diminishes God's greatness. And that's the fundamental concern for all Muslims, is the greatness of God. That's their number one issue. They even have a phrase when they meet each other. Uh, if they meet each other in the street, or the call to prayer in the Muslim faith five times a day, or when they find even out bad news, such as learning about the loss of a loved one, or maybe some, or even just things like Haley going for surgery, like we just prayed for, they'll say this phrase, they'll say, Allahu Akbar which means God is great, or God is greater than others. So, Tori comes and says, Haley needs surgery. Oh, don't worry, Alu or Allah Akbar, God is greater. And that's, to, like, you know, whatever circumstances happen, He's in control, and that's all that matters. So, pardon the, so because He's so great, and He's so eternal and so absolute, in the Muslim faith, He would never, ever subject Himself to coming down to earth to dwell amongst human people 
And nor would he ever bring himself to a place where he diminished himself, where he'd be known by human beings personally. That's an absolute no-no in the, in the Muslim faith. And I want to read you this quote from Abdu Murray. Abdu Murray, I heard him speak twice now, and Rob and I went to see him uh, about a month ago. And he is a former Muslim who became a Christian. And he said this, for Muslims, God would never condescend to his creation by appearing as a human, as one of us. He would never allow himself to be subjected to the frailties of the human experience, like walking, sweating, and feeling pain. And of course, it's, of course, it's inconceivable to Muslims that God would subject himself to the humiliation of death on a cross at the hands of wicked men. So if, when you look at this, you can see that the incarnation is just incomprehensible to some people in the world. And it's interesting, I had two conversations in 2018, or at least in the last year, two conversations with different Muslim men, one on the plane as I was coming home from uh, Scotland, and one at the brick when I was buying furniture, <laughs> two Muslims. We get into spiritual conversations, and both of them brought up the incarnation in my conversation with them, and how that was, uh, we can't, I can't believe in your God, your, or your Jesus Christ being God because of these things. So it's very interesting um, that this is actually fundamental in their conversations uh, right up front. Ian, these, the one was from, uh, both of them were Canadian Muslims too, by the way. So it's interesting. So with this in mind, I want to suggest four reasons for the incarnation and why this doesn't diminish God in any way. It actually shows that he's greater for coming down and dwelling among us. The first one, the first reason for the incarnation is to fulfill prophecy. He came to fulfill prophecy. In Luke 24, 44, Jesus said this to the disciples just before his ascension into heaven. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The context is important. Jesus earlier had just appeared to two men on the road to Emmaus. Uh, you remember the story? Jesus has been crucified. These guys weren't expecting to be crucified. Jesus, uh, they're all glum and they're down in the dumps over the loss of the Messiah. Jesus appears to them, starts speaking to them. They don't recognize him. And they, and, uh, they say, hey, like Jesus, haven't you been around? Like, don't you know why we're so sad? And Jesus says this later on. He says, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe and all the prophets have spoken. And then it says this, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures that he would suffer. After this encounter, the, these two men in the road to Emmaus run to the disciples and say, we, we've met Jesus. And uh, right when they're talking about this, Jesus appears amongst the disciples. And that's when he makes the quote in 2444. So he's just told the, road to, the men in the road to Emmaus, hey, have you not known about the things about me in the law and the prophets, how they're to be fulfilled? He says to the disciples the same thing. Did you not know about me and the law and the prophets and how they were supposed to be fulfilled? And the, the context in which Jesus starts speaking to them were, were these things. That he would suffer, that he'd be resurrected, and that the purpose for his coming was to die for sin in order for, to offer humanity reconciliation with God. So those are the context of what Jesus was trying to show them within the fulfillment of the scriptures. So his, his purpose and mission is the Messiah. The apostles and other New Testament writers consistently appeal to you and I to look up the fulfilled scriptures to substantiate the claims about Christ. 
In Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 2 and 3, Luke records this about Paul's missionary focus. According to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So again, uh, these New Testament writers are using the fulfillment of the scriptures to give evidence that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. So clearly, Jesus came to fulfill prophecy. That was one of the reasons for his incarnation. Now, I don't, I'm not sure if you knew this or not, but there's over 300 prophecies in the Bible concerning Jesus Christ. Over 300. Some even suggest 400, depending how you interpret texts and whatnot. I had three different sources confirm this for me, all the reputable name and, and whatnot. So I thought what we should do now is go through each one, all 300, one by one, and I think we'll start by turning to Genesis chapter 3. So open your Bibles. You don't believe me? Okay. All right. How about I give you three, just to give you an idea of where we're at. All right. How about his conception? His conception. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son. She will call him Emmanuel. Well, the, the prediction of Jesus' birth in Isaiah 7 was a natural birth and to come from a female, which we know as Mary, it was still unnatural in one way, in its conception. Uh, being a virgin birth was beyond any human planning or beyond any human control. So it was a prophetic uh, utterance. And we have in Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, a confirmation that a virgin gave birth to a boy. It says in Matthew 1.25 that Joseph kept Mary a virgin until Jesus was born. <clears throat> Just to make sure that everyone knew that there was no sex involved in the, in the relationship prior to Christ's birth. How about uh, his place of birth, Micah 5.2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be the ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In all the continents in the world, the Middle East was chosen. In all the countries of the world that God could have chosen and predicted, Israel was chosen. From all the provinces and districts, Judea was chosen. From all the cities, towns, and villages in the world, it wasn't even Jerusalem, but Bethlehem was the place of birth. God was able to, through the prophet, thousands, get, uh, eliminate thousands of possibilities in terms of location of birth and pinpoint it to the exact place of Bethlehem. And the New Testament confirms this in Matthew chapter 2 verse 1 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. How about how he was going to die? Psalm 22 14 verse 8 through 18. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a posture. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of the death. For dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. David, who wrote this, lived a thousand years before Jesus Christ. A thousand years, give or take. He predicted that he would be crucified. Now why is this so important? This description about how he was going to die was written about 800 years before crucifixion began to be practiced by the Romans. 
Romans started practicing crucifixion about 800 years uh, later. And yet, here he is predicting how he's going to die. The Jewish method of sto was stoning. Everyone knew that. You stone people to death. This is a Jew writing about how the Messiah was going to die. Remember, remember when they tried to kill Jesus? How did they always try to kill him? They picked up stones to huck at him. They didn't try to get him crucified. They had to use the Romans to do that. All of this is a, that's coincidence, right? It's just coincidence that this all happened. Well, I don't think so. In a book written by a professor named Peter Stoner, which is an interesting name in today's day and age with the liberal government, but Peter Stoner, poor guy, in talking about the mathematical probability that all these prophecies could be fulfilled by one man, said this, uh, in the, math, the scientific research he did, it was 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Just to help you understand this, there are 12 zeros in a trillion. 12 zeros in a trillion. I had to look this up because I didn't know, but it goes in threes, right? The closest thing to 17 was 18. That's a quintillion, okay? So there's no such thing as a quintillion, quintillion zillionaire in the world. There's like billionaires and maybe even a trillionaire, maybe here, here or there, but I, but I don't know. But regardless, that's eight, uh, 17 zeros, a quintillion's 18 zeros. And these findings were affirmed by Harold Artzler of the American Scientific Affiliation. He spoke on behalf of the entire committee who researched Stoner's findings and said that this, his work was completely dependable and accurate. Accurate. So again, science backs the fact that Jesus fulfilled prophecy. <laughs> Non-Christian sources. Why else did Jesus come to earth? Why did God take on human flesh? To reveal God's character to us. Do you remember when we were studying the book of John and in chapter 14, one of Jesus' disciples named Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Do you remember his response? He said, have I been with you all this time and you still don't know me? He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Earlier in John 5.30, he said, I do nothing on my own initiative, but only the will of he who sent me. And then John 6.16, while teaching in the temple in the midst of the Jews, who were astonished at his teaching, by the way, he said, my teaching is not mine, but it is he, his, who sent me. One of the main reasons Jesus came to earth and took on flesh was to show us who God is. Fantastic uh, cross-reference in, in Hebrews chapter 1. He says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these days, last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also, through whom also he made the world. You know how the God spoke to the people in Israel in the Old Testament days, right? He would come to a prophet, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, whoever, and he would speak directly to them, or Moses, speak directly to them, and then those prophets would go communicate the word of God to the people, and that's how they heard from God. What is the author of Hebrews saying? God upped the ante. It was an incredible privilege for Israel and, and the Gentile nations who came to hear him, because he came in the form of Jesus Christ, and instead of just speaking to one man who iterated it to the entire community of believers, 
or the Jews, he, uh, he, he came and he dwelt among the people and whenever he spoke, and whenever he, uh, this physical presence there was actually receiving God in the flesh. What a tremendous privilege for the people of Israel back in those days and the people who heard him. So that meant when, when Christ spoke, it was as if God was speaking. So when Christ spoke on forgiveness, anger, marriage, how to receive eternal life, God was speaking. They're identical words. You'd hear no different message. When you heard Jesus, when you saw Jesus deal with issues, and you saw his responses to them, like acts of mercy, like healing, curing of disease, casting out demons, that was what God would do. If it was his anger, what he got, what frustrated him and, and, and ticked him off, like then you saw that's exactly how God would act. So when he flipped over the tables in the temple, or when he was spoke out against hypocrisy of religious leaders, that's exactly to the same degree how God would respond. And this is important because in our culture right now, when we know this in Canada, there's wide opinions about who God is. Huge opinions. Um, some people, I know I've dealt with this in the gym when I was working here, uh, behind here. One woman in particular said, well, we are gods. Okay? Another, other people think that God is Allah. Some people think that God is in the creation. Uh, like the moon, the stars, or the, uh, some native people would think that God would be, say, like a, what, we, what could be seen and expressed in the animal kingdom. Some people think that God's an external force, like Star Wars, right? And others just believe there's flat out no God. Well, the Christian message is really simple. If you want to know God, you have to know Jesus Christ. And again, scientific evidence statistically points to this being true. Because if the, the fulfilled prophecies are true, which science says they are, Jesus makes, there's claims of Jesus' deity in the Old Testament. And when he came to earth, he spoke about himself being deity. So therefore, to know him is to know God. And I'll give you one thought from the New Testament in Colossians 2.9. For in him, Jesus... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. One other reason that Jesus came to earth and took on human flesh in the incarnation is to save us from sin. Save us from sin. 1 Timothy 1.15 It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And this is Paul speaking about himself. The question would be that I had when I was preparing for this was if Jesus was sent here to save sinners, why couldn't he deal with sin in any other way? Why send Christ to come in, in, like in, in human flesh? Come from heaven and live here. Why, why couldn't he deal with it another way? Like, why couldn't the animal sacrificial system be sufficient? Why couldn't you just slaughter an animal and that's the way you're forgiven of sin? Why couldn't another human die in play, in, in, as a way of dealing with sin? Why couldn't rituals that every church seems to have, like every cult especially, has rituals? That you do this, do this, do this, and God will accept you. Why did Jesus say that's not acceptable? Why couldn't our good morals 
like how good we are as people would be the measurement stick of getting into heaven. Like, you know, Jesus looking at our lives and going, well, you know, you've done enough good to outweigh the bad, so like a report card, you got 52%, so you're good for heaven. Why take on human flesh? Well, the passage we read this morning is what I want to focus on now. There's two reasons provided in Hebrews for the incarnation to deal with sin. The first one is found in verses 14 and 15. He says, Since we are God's children, are human beings, made of flesh and blood, and watch this, He became flesh and blood to be, uh, by being born in human form, for only as a human being could He die, and in dying break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in that way could He deliver those who, through fear of death, have been living all their lives as slaves in constant dread. How did he, through the Incarnation, render Satan powerless and defeat death? How did he do that, according to verses 4.15? Well, it's only through the Resurrection was that made possible. Only the Resurrection, only through the Resurrection, in a bodily form, was Satan rendered powerless in defeating death. In order to understand this, we have to go back into the history of how sin and death entered the world, and we need a working theology of how this came into being. You see, when God first made the world, sin and death did not exist in the original creation. Remember the days, the days one through six? He says, everything is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. Everything changed, though, when Satan tempted Eve. God made a declaration, if you eat from this tree, you will surely die. Satan comes and tempts her and says, by the way, God's basically lying to you. You will surely not die, and she falls for it. After this, we see the effects of sin and death coming into the, to the world. First, the first act of death in the Bible was animal sacrifice, and God made skins for them. And then later on, we see the tragedies of sin entering the world because Cain kills his brother and so on and so forth. But the effects of Eve's decisions, and ultimately Adam's as well, fell on us. It fell on us. So consider Romans 5.12. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. That's how sin came into being. And Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone is sin. Paul later says this in Romans 6. Oh, I don't have it. That's okay. For the wages of sin are death. So people often wonder, well, in our world, and don't have an explanation necessarily for it except for biology, but why do we die? Why do we die? The Bible answers that question. We die because of sin. We die because of sin, and we die because ultimately Satan brought the lie in that we wouldn't die if we disobeyed God. And because Adam and Eve fell for it, we, we have now felt the effects of that, and we are born now with this propensity to sin, and therefore, we are feeling the effects of that fall. So therefore, if the wages of sin are death, and deaths are reality, then you would have to, the only way you could defeat death is to be sinless. Right? If the wages of sin is death, then you will not die if you're sinless. In fact, if Jesus hadn't been crucified unjustly, he'd still be walking the earth today. So when he was born 2,000 years ago, he'd still be alive today if he'd never been crucified. Because death can't grip him because he's sinless. 
Does that make sense? So we, we, we are not sinless and so therefore we die. Physically and spiritually. But you now you see the importance of the resurrection. Because the fact that Jesus was bodily resurrected proved that he was sinless. Because if he was not resurrected, that meant that he was a sinner. And that means that he was not dying for our sins, but dying for his own. Which is, which is not true. And this is why Paul makes this statement about the fact that Christ had to be raised for you and I to have spiritual life. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. You're still guilty of your sins. So the, the way Jesus defeated death was by being resurrected and he defeated the power of the enemy. Let me give you an analogy, and I know it's kind of simplistic, but this is, how we, this, is how we, this is how we receive life and defeat death ourselves. I never forget as a kid watching Superman. Remember, like, Superman always liked, well, Lois Lane really loved him, right? He was always liked him, but didn't know it was Clark Kent was Superman. But Superman could fly. He could, he could escape and go up to, the, like, up to space, up to the heavens, and he could fly. How did Lois Lane get to fly with him? She'd have to jump on his back, basically, and ride on his coattails, and she'd get to fly and experience everything he did because of his power and his, 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 uh, like his godlike status. Well, the Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. He's raised from the dead because sin can't hold him. So when we put our faith in him, we basically jump on his back like Superman, and when he goes to glory, we fly to glory with him. The only reason we get to go to glory is because he was resurrected. So we don't, when we die, because we put our faith in Him, we spiritually and bodily in the second coming will receive a new body and we will be resurrected to, to heavens. That's an incredible thought. And that's why He's defined as the first fruits in terms of the physical resurrection. It says Christ is the first fruits because He was the first one to escape death because He was sinless. And likewise, we, by putting our faith in Him, inherit those first fruit qualities. And we also get resurrected as well. Those who don't put their faith in Him um, will not receive a resurrection of spiritual life into glory. See, this is why an animal could never save anybody. There's no moral dimension to an animal. They can't sin. They can't disobey or obey God. They live on instinct. Right? Have you ever, like, we don't take animals to court when they're guilty of murder. From our point of view. They don't get in trouble for gossiping. They don't lie. They don't steal. They don't commit adultery. They're not selfish. This is really hilarious. Like, or not hilarious, it's kind of sad in a way. But just the, the illogical thoughts. This guy's an intelligent man, but sort of the illogical thoughts about this kind of thing. I had a Buddhist friend. We're sitting in brown sugar having coffee about a year and a half ago. And as a Buddhist, he believes in the equality of humans and animals in terms of value and importance. And I looked at him, and I said, I won't mention his name, but I said, I'll just call him Bob. I said, Bob, I said, like, I love you, buddy, but this, you don't even believe that logically. He said, yeah, I do. I said, no, you don't. I said, let me give you an example. I said, if you were driving down the street in your car, and you ran over a dog, would you feel bad? He said, yeah, I would. I said, how long would it bug you for? A week, two weeks? He goes, yeah, probably. I said, Okay, and would you be over it by then? He goes, yeah, I would. So what would happen if you ran over a kid? How long would it take you to get over that? You'd never get over that. 
Secondly, I said, uh, if you run over a dog, you'd never go to court. Ever. And no one would accuse you of murder. If you ran over a kid, you would never get out of the, your name would never get out of the papers for at least six months until you were charged and sent to jail. And you'd be front and center of the news until that was dealt with. I said, so a lot, I said, logically, you don't even believe that in your own conscience. And it was kind of silent, and the subject changed to the next conversation. You see why animals can't save? There's no moral dimension to an animal. There's no moral dimension. The only reason animals die is because we, as humans, brought the fall onto them. And we were told in Genesis to have rule and dominion over them. Creation suffers because man suffers. If we didn't suffer, creation would still be okay. That's Romans tells us about that too. So, first of all, the incarnation was important because we, Jesus had to render Satan powerless and defeat death. Secondly, he came to satisfy God's wrath. Look at Hebrews, the second verses, uh, 16 and 17. In continuation, we all know he did not come as an angel, but as a human being, yes, as a Jew. And it was necessary for Jesus to be like us, his brothers, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God, a priest who would be both merciful to us and faithful to God in dealing with the sins of the people. I like the NASB translation. Now, I use this because it's easier to understand, but the NASB says he became a propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a word that we don't use in our culture very, very often, but the word means to satisfy the wrath of God, to satisfy God's anger. And see, the role of a priest in the Old Testament was to provide intercession for the people. Now, the primary means of intercession was animal sacrifice. So you'd bring your animal to the priest, he would slaughter it, on your behalf, and then that was a symbol that your that forgiveness had been offered to you through the shedding of blood, and that you could enter into a relationship with God through that recon, uh, through that reconciliation. But this but this um, this shedding of blood was a picture of satisfying God's need to judge you, satisfying God's need or His His anger towards you. And now you could go to Him in prayer and offering worship because it's acceptable because blood had been spilled. Now, of course, we know from, from the New Testament, um, Hebrews especially, that this was all symbolic. It was symbolic of a different priest to come. And here we see in chapter 2, he was described here as a merciful and faithful high priest. Because he, through his own life, laid his own life down, and through the shedding of his blood, satisfied God's anger towards you and I, and his need to judge you and I for sin, because he paid that penalty for us. And this is super important for us to understand. Like, because we understand that we're in relationship with God now and that he, he's, uh, we've been forgiven, we, don't, we sometimes forget the, the, how much sin angers God and how, how much wrath He had to take out for that. I mean, in our culture, we mim minimalize sin like crazy. I mean, we just think it's like, oh, whatever, you know, no big deal. And we think that God looks at us like it's life's a report card. Well, I did this good, I did this bad, well, it cancels out because my good outweighs my bad, and so on. Listen, the crucifixion teaches you that, that, that sin is, is, is detestable. You watch the passion of the Christ, and it would be worse than that. You watch the, the penalty of what, had to go, what Jesus had to go through. 
and the, the agony and the torture, that's, that's God's thought process about what sin costs. Like, he could have hung Jesus. He could have been hung from a cross or hung from a tree, like over in like 10 seconds, right? He could have poisoned him, used poison to take his life. No, he doesn't. He has him flogged and he has him crucified. That's the way, that's a picture of how much God needs to judge sin and how much it angers him. But it's also, that's why it's a beautiful phrase here, that he's a merciful and faithful high priest. Because he had provided mercy to us. Mercy is not receiving punishment that's due to you because it fell on his back. So again, I want to speak about this. Uh, well, actually, I'll just show you this quickly. This is a declaration of his intercessory priestly work. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But I want to speak quickly about this uh, idea of your morality getting into heaven. Because again, we have in our culture, as well, that's a pervasive thing. I want to give you an illustration that you'll understand. It's too bad Eric wasn't here because he'd get a, probably get a kick out of this. If you were driving 50 in a 30 zone, and you got a speeding ticket, and you went to court down here on, on the street, and the judge looked at your ticket and saw the fine, and you were about to be sentenced, and you just said to him, can I just make a plea for myself? And uh, you say, and he goes, sure, ahead, go ahead. And you say, well, I don't know if you've noticed in, my, in my, like, my profile, but you'll notice I have no traffic offenses in my entire life, and I've been driving for 20 years. So I'm a good driver. My, my record's clean, no accidents. Uh, I've never had a speeding ticket. And so clearly for 20 years, I'm immaculate in my, uh, my thing. So I, what I'm bringing this up for is I, I would just like you to forgive this one traffic offense because I'm such a good driver. What would the judge do to you? He'd say, that's nice. Pay the 300 bucks and have a good day. You would never, ever, in front of a judge, claim your good morality in terms of your driving record as your way of getting out of that ticket. It's one offense. One. Let's say you've had three accidents because you're not the greatest driver. And it's only been ten years and you've had three accidents. You wouldn't say, well, you know, if you look at that, I've been pretty good as a driver. <laughs> Can you let me off on that as my speeding ticket? And the, the judge would laugh you out of court. Our secular world believes that a, a moral, a report card in, in, in justices don't make a difference. So, but in the spiritual realm, we want it to make a difference. It's illogical and it's incongruent in our thinking. And God said, I sent Jesus Christ to die as a propitiation for the sins of the people. Because even if you've broken one offense of God, it's worth the cross to me. You can't stand in my presence. I'm too holy, I'm too righteous, I'm too pure, I'm too perfect, and you guys aren't. And, and you need to be saved. Your sins have to be covered. Finally, the fourth reason for the incarnation 
He came to sympathize with her weaknesses. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, which is the next verse after 16 and 17 that we just read. For he himself has now been through suffering and temptation. He knows what it is like when we suffer and are tempted, and he is wonderfully able to help us. In verse uh, chapter 4, verse 15, he says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, as we are, yet without sin. Again, this is why an animal's sacrifice is not sufficient as a sacrifice to cover sins, and why our morals and rituals don't make any difference either. Uh, but animals are not moral beings like we were, as we just said. They can't face temptation. They can't face, they can't be tempted. So therefore, as a result, we can't relate to them. So if I'm suffering and I'm tempted and I'm going through stuff, I can't turn to my dog and say, man, can you like, like I, I, you know, I love you and can, you must know exactly how I feel and I'm going to turn to you in prayer now because uh, you get my life. I mean, it's just, it's just ludicrous. But here we learn that Jesus is someone we can relate to because he experienced the same things as you and I did. Now remember last week's sermon. In the 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted in three areas that you and I are tempted in all the time in the areas of lust. The area of flesh. Turn this stone into bread. I know you're hungry. Right? We're tempted in all those things too. Go after what you want. You can have whatever you want. Whatever your flesh wants, go after it. And it is no cause and effect. The pride of life. Throw yourself down off of the pinnacle of this temple, Jesus. And all of our, our, all of this temps, all of our temptations is basically for us to exalt ourselves, to, to protect ourselves, to make ourselves sound and look good. It's all about public image and whatnot. Fight to the dying end if there's any injustice done to you, and so on. Life, you know, life needs to be fair, so fight for, for everything you can. Pride of, pride of uh, how about the lust of the eyes? He took him to the top of the mountain to look at all the kingdoms, says, if you worship me, you can have everything you have here. And that, what do we, you and I just suffer with? The same thing. It's Christmas time. We go to Costco, our kids demonstrate the lust of the eyes. They constantly, I want this, I want this, I want this. You know, when I'm just like, we already got you a Christmas present, that's good enough. Right? But again, it's just, it's just constant. Jesus didn't just face these things for 40 days. And never again. So he's 33 years old when he died. 40 days of temptation, everything else was scot-free. Are you kidding me? He faced it as a child, a teenager, an adult. After the 40 days, for those next almost two and, a, well, two and three quarter years or whatever, he's faced constant temptations through his life. But that's why you and I can go to him. See, one of the biggest lies in the midst of temptation, especially if you're a Christian, is you should be ashamed of yourself for being tempted like that. Or think, thinking that way. Man, God would be sure disappointed in you that you're having those thoughts, and so on and so forth. You're, you know you're really alone in this. Not according to these scriptures. You have a high priest that can sympathize with you. He knows what it's like to have the pride of life tested, the lust of the eyes tested, the, um, the flesh tested. He knows all those things. And yet he didn't sin. And so we can go to him because he understands us and what we're going through. So again, 
Sadly, for many of us at Christmas time, this season is empty and it can be lonely and hopeless. Not for everybody, but that can be the case for many people. But if you read these four reasons for the Incarnation and the reasons for Jesus' birth, you can see that it's a time for celebration and for new hope. It's a reminder that we have a Savior that loves us, enough that He'd be willing to leave glory in heaven to take on human flesh and experience everything that we have so He could save us and bring us into relationship with Him. So again, an argument to the Muslim, back to the beginning of the sermon, doesn't diminish God's greatness for Him to become human. It enhances His greatness for the fact that He became human. And in the Muslim faith, you can never know if you're going to, you have no guarantee you're going to heaven until the day of judgment. Even the Prophet Muhammad, who they idolized, has no guarantee until he stands before Allah for judgment. And he's a God you can't ever personally know. And in the, the Christian faith, you can be guaranteed right now a promise of eternity. And you can be promised that there was a God that personally wants to know you. For me, it's a, there's no doubt who's greater. So how do we receive this love? Like we've been practicing for two months in this church, the ABCDs of faith. You acknowledge, you acknowledge before Jesus Christ that you have sin in your life. You acknowledge the sin. B, you believe that he did something about it. He substituted his life on the cross to pay your penalty so that you don't have to face God in, 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 eternity, in eternity and be judged and have his wrath fall upon you and he separates you and sends you to hell. He, did it. he died so that you could go to glory. But you have to believe he substituted his life for yours to pay the penalty. See? You have to confess your sin now. You confess it. Not the sinner's prayer. Not forgive me. That doesn't work. It's a, it's a, you confess. You own the things you've done that you know. It's like standing before the judge in that courtroom with a speeding ticket. He says, you went 50 in a 30 zone. Jesus says, what did you do? You name the sins. You confess them before him. You tell him what those things are that separated you from his, his perfect holiness. And D, you dedicate your life as a love expression for what he did for you. I always say there's two deaths at Calvary. There's two deaths at Calvary. Him for you, but you for him. Don't ever forget that. That's the piece in the North American church that is completely missed out. We are doing a terrible job as evangelical churches across North America in this one category especially, the D. We do not teach the reciprocal love back to Jesus Christ. We only teach his love for, his love for us, but not our love for him. That's, dead, that's shown the, uh, the way we treat him and, we, and the way we live out and respond to his commands. So what are the lessons we take away? Four reasons for the incarnation and the hope it provides at Christmas time. Lesson number one. It gives us the assurance that the Christian faith is credible and trustworthy. The Old Testament, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the prophets and everything that was written in the scriptures concerning me. 
He came for that purpose. The fact that we, we that, that, that's one in 17 zeros, that all, profo- all these prophetic utterances could be fulfilled by one person, and faith excluded, scientific research says it's, it's impossible to the one with the 17th degree of zeros that this could happen, shows us that we're not believing in a hoax and a big joke. We're believing in a faith that has credibility to the nth degree. It's trustworthy. You can read the Old Testament and you can know for certain that Christ was incarnated and everything he claimed about himself was true. Great hope at Christmas time. Second lesson. The incarnation gives us the assurance that if we know Jesus personally, we can know God. People who feel hopeless, especially at Christmas, a lot of it is because the relationships are broken, things aren't going well, there's no, financially things are broken, uh, it goes on and on and on, maybe health reasons, whatever. Here, if we know Jesus personally, we can know who God is. There's no ambiguity in knowing Him and knowing God. That's great hope, especially when we consider the eternal ramifications of what that means for us. Third, the incarnation gives us the assurance that God has provided a means for us to be in relationship with Him. How is that? Through, the, through, the, through uh, defeating the power of death, de- defeating Satan, ultimately, and by dying for our sin, satisfying the wrath of God against us. Incarnation gives us that hope and that assurance. And finally, the Incarnation gives us assurance that Jesus is someone who can relate to us and understands us. And again, a lot of times in life, we feel like nobody gets us, we're alone, like this is a, like life is hopeless for those reasons. But again, this is incredible. And again, I, I think this is fundamental um, a fundamental difference between what we teach in Christianity and other belief systems. God is someone you can't relate to, you don't know, who can't understand you, and the Christian faith says the exact opposite.